0: Well, if you will open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we are going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. We have just finished this beautiful opening section where Peter begins by blessing God for the work of the Gospel and the sovereign majesty of the Lord and His hand in giving new life and a new birth to His people. It's a celebration of the Gospel, but the Gospel has implications. It has implications for how we are now to live. We don't simply... Believe in the Gospel and then leave the gospel we believe in the gospel and then live the gospel and this is where uh, peter is uh, this is what peter is is going to begin by saying in verses thirteen to sixteen our text this morning, and then uh, also what follows and what we will see in the coming weeks and so let's begin by reading together first Peter chapter one verse. 13 down to verse 16. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, in your eternal mercy, you set your affections on us, your people, and determined that you would rescue us and redeem us by the work of your Son, Jesus, and that through the cross of Christ and the power of the resurrection, you would apply redemption to our lives now by the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit, you would sanctify us and make us holy. And so, Lord, you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and summoned us to live now as children of light. Now that we have, by faith, the Holy Spirit of God, you call us to lives of holiness. And if we do not pursue holiness, we will inevitably be bringing blasphemy to your name. So Lord, I pray that as we hear your people embrace the gospel, and if there are those who are here who have not embraced the gospel, that you would bring them to yourself and that through the reconciling work of the gospel, you would make us holy we would live in holiness. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As long as the uh, gospel has been, since the very beginning. It has always faced various challenges. Challenges that have come from outside of the church and challenges that have come from inside the church. There are of course ideologies outside of the church that gain influence in the wider culture and through that influence in the culture they begin to influence the thinking of many Christians. And so they have to be exposed. These ideologies have to be challenged. The Gospel and the message of the Word of God has to be applied to the various philosophies of the day and the truths of the Word of God must overcome them. But other times, and perhaps probably most of the time, the most pressing challenges to the Gospel actually come from within the church, from among those who profess to be the people of God. When the Apostle Paul, for example, was saying his final farewells to the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, knowing that this was going to be the last time that that he would see them, knowing that that he had spent uh, much of his time and effort in planting this church and ministering to this church and sending other gospel preachers to this church, and he had labored over them in prayer and even in tears. Knowing that this was going to be the last time that he he would see them, he charged the elders of the church to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Then he said to them, he said, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, And then listen, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. The challenges that Paul is prophetically saying is going to come to the church at Ephesus are going to be challenges that arise from within. Men who for a long time had preached the Gospel faithfully, perhaps had even led others to Christ, are eventually going to turn away from the Gospel and draw others to themselves. They will have such a craving for power and for recognition that they will twist the Word of God to suit themselves and draw many to themselves. We know as well about the book of Galatians, of course, where false teachers there within the church were preaching a false gospel, a gospel that Paul says is no gospel at all. He he cursed the gospel they were preaching. And they were teaching that a person is justified not by faith in Christ, but by faith in Christ plus the observance The Mosaic Law. They were essentially teaching that you need to do both of these things. You need to believe in Jesus and then you need to become circumcised. You need to become a physical Jew. And then you'll be right with God. But another challenge that we have seen since the very beginning is what has come to be known as the antinomian heresy. Very simply, antinomianism is the exact opposite of the Galatian heresy. It means anti-law or against the law. And it refers to people who believe in a kind of cheap grace. They rightly believe that you must have faith in Christ to be saved, and that the grace of God cleanses you of your sins. He forgives you of all of your sin, but they they then draw the wrong conclusion about what that implies for your life now. They believe that there is no need for ongoing repentance. No prayer. No pursuit of holiness. No fear of God. No obedience. No submission to the Word of God. They live very much as a fulfillment of what the apostle Paul rebuked in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5 concludes by displaying the superiority of the grace of God over sin. Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 5 that where sin increased, because the law came in to increase trespasses, to to expose and reveal more and more sin. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, because of the work of Christ and the greater power of His obedience and death and resurrection in comparison to the work of Adam who plunged humanity into sin by his single act of disobedience. Because of Christ, the more that sin spread, in the world the more grace would abound to overcome that sin or to put it a little bit more provocatively and to use more, uh, more more so the language of Paul at the end of the book of Romans chapter 5 the increase of sin makes the grace of God look really good and really gracious The more sin there is, the more gracious God's grace really looks. That's the basic argument of the end of Romans 5. Romans 6 raises the question What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Let us sin to make the grace of God look all the more gracious. If the more I sin and the more gracious God looks, then then I should sin to bring Him glory. That's the hypothetical question that Paul raises here, and he answers, God forbid, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who were crucified with Christ still live in sin? He's saying that that is the wrong conclusion to draw. Grace does not give you a license to sin. Grace rather frees you from the enslaving power of sin and makes you a slave to righteousness. The antinomian, however, lives as if the erroneous conclusion that Paul is challenging is correct. He lives as if the grace and the forgiveness of God allows him to live continually in disobedience. And friends, in many ways, that is the landscape of modern evangelicalism. Modern evangelicalism is, by and large, full of antinomians. If not in fault, in practice, many Christians live as if they were antinomians. They have no pursuit of holiness. They don't care truthfully about obedience. They pay no attention to it all, put no effort in it at all. They live just like the rest of the world, and they justify it by saying, my sins are forgiven. I can live in sin. I can have no fear of judgment or hell, because my sins have been forgiven. The book of Hebrews very clearly says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It is a wrong conclusion to draw. But the grace and the forgiveness of God allows you to trample the grace and forgiveness of God. Many people live as if the gospel has virtually no implications for what their life ought now to look like. But in our text this morning from 1 Peter what we find is a very clear call to action in light of the gospel. Peter is drawing implications from the gospel. And as Bible-believing Christians, as disciples of Christ, one of the things that we want to do to, to live out the Christian walk faithfully We want to think God's thoughts after him. And so when Peter is praising God for his sovereign work in the Gospel, and then his conclusion is that that implies a certain manner of life that I am to live, that's how we ought to be thinking. That's how our minds should be shaped. Throughout the first part of chapter 1, again Peter has been extolling the mercies of God, that God has caused his people to be born again and given us new life, that even now he is preparing for us a great inheritance to be received at the revelation of Christ, that he's guarding us through faith. Verses 3-12 to are largely about this sovereign work of God in accordance with Scripture to save His people through faith. For Peter, the sovereign work of God in salvation. The Gospel has implications for how we are to live. It is not just simply a set of doctrines that we believe in as as a confession and nothing more. It comes with a call to obey. And the Christian life can, can essentially be summarized as, as one of those hymns that, that we sing sometimes puts it. Trust and obey. There's no other way. You can summarize the, the whole of the gospel in life now in, in those two words. Trust and obey. But to use Peter's language, we're going to divide this passage here into two parts. He gives two main exhortations here. Number one, be hopeful. Trust. Be hopeful. And then number two, be holy. Be hopeful and be holy. This is what the gospel calls us to do. So let's, uh, let's unpack this a little bit more uh, together. So in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, Peter begins here, this, he begins this, this sentence with the word, therefore. There's a, there's a logical inference that ties together what is about to follow with what he just said. What follows from the Gospel is not, therefore, let us sin that grace may abound. What follows is rather the opposite. The gospel demands a certain kind of action. And that action is first of all to be hopeful. To be a hopeful people. Notice that the main command here is found at the end of verse 13. Peter says, therefore, and then towards the end of the verse, therefore set your hope fully on on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you live as exiles in this world, as you go through trials of various kinds, as you find yourself as a foreigner and an outcast because you have been born again and born into the family of God and are therefore not a citizen of the world, You're a stranger to the world. As you find yourself living in this state, you are to set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you. This is essentially Peter's way of saying, trust in the promises of God. You trust continually in the promises of God. He uses the word hope very much like the Apostle Paul uses the word faith. They're virtually synonyms. And so the exhortation here in light of the work of God in the gospel is to set your hope on the gospel. You you don't graduate from it. You don't move on from the gospel. You don't believe the gospel in the beginning and so get saved and and then you, you know, move on to, you know, what, okay, what are the practical things in life? No, it's the gospel in the beginning, it's the gospel now, it's the gospel in the future. You hold on to the gospel from now until the end of eternity. It is the gospel that brought you to God when you first believed. It is the gospel that will bring you to God at the revelation of Christ. You set your hope on the gospel. How though are we to go about doing this? It's one thing to to say it, trust in the Lord, believe the gospel. But how do we continue in the faith and continue believing and hoping when it is so easy to drift away and to fall into unbelief and apostasy? Well, Peter provides here two things that we are to do in order to set our hope on the grace that is to come. One of these he says is to prepare your minds for action. He says again, literally, you set your hope on fully on the grace that will be brought literally by preparing your minds for action. This phrase here, In a very wooden way of of translating it, literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, it was customary for men to wear long robes, right? They didn't have fitted jeans or nice athletic wear that would allow them to, to walk comfortably and to run long distances. And so if something came about where you had to make some sort of journey, you had to go somewhere rather hastily, you, what you would do is you'd, you'd grab up your robes and you'd, you'd gird them up and you'd tuck them into your belt so that your legs would have some more freedom so that you could, you know, climb over some some rocks or on a mountain or in the wilderness, right? You needed some freedom of movement because if you're just wearing the robes, you're probably going to trip over yourself pretty easily. So, so you gird up the lo- your loins by tucking in your robes into your belt. In the book of Exodus, when the Israelites are commanded to eat the Passover lamb before setting out from Egypt, they were told to to eat the Passover lamb in haste. To eat it in a manner that symbolized that they were about to take a journey quickly out of Egypt and into a wilderness. And one of the ways that they symbolized this eating in haste was by eating the lamb with their loins girded up, with a belt fastened around their their waist and ready for travel. Here, Peter is saying, you do that with your mind. You gird up the loins of your mind. Setting your hope on the grace to come. Trusting in the Gospel is not just a matter of some kind of sentiment that you have. It's not just some good feeling that you have about the future. It involves thinking. Using the mind. Gospel-believing people are not an unthinking people. We do not Check our minds at the door and replace it with faith. Those are not at odds with each other. No true hope and belief involves the whole person, it involves the emotions, the affections, the desires, the will, and the mind. We are to think, and specifically here, we are to think about the hope of the gospel. It is, in other words, to regularly occupy our thoughts. Something that we are constantly turning over in our minds. So let me ask you, what occupies your thoughts? What are you constantly thinking about? There are some people, they have a... A profound love of money. That's what they're always thinking about. Uh, they wake up and they think about how am I going to, to make more money today? They go to bed strategizing how am I going to make more money? Uh, Who do I have to rub shoulders with? Right? They're, they're always strategizing and thinking about the possibilities of more and more and more wealth. That's what occupies their minds. What occupies yours? What is that thing, which there normally is, at least one or two things that constantly occupies your thoughts? Peter says what must occupy your thoughts is the hope of the Gospel. That if there's anything else taking that place, You're not preparing your minds for action. If you're a Christian, you do not buy into the secular religious divide that the culture has created where business and government and family and the education of your children, these are all things that you think about in one way. And then when it comes to church, you can can kind of think about that more religiously. You you think about the world and everything going on in your life and and out in the world, virtually seven days out of the week, and then uh, for a couple of hours on Sunday morning, it's time to get religious now. That's the pattern of a lot of people's thoughts. And again, Peter is saying that that's not, that's not for the Christian. That's the old man. That's an unbeliever. The Christian does not divide things into different categories. No, for the Christian, you ought to recognize that all of life belongs to Christ, every aspect. And so the way that you think about everything is always with a view to the gospel. Psalm 1 says, The blessed man is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. The Christian man is the one who meditates on the gospel of God day and night. And that way of thinking shapes every sphere of your life. So you set your hope on the gospel by, number one, using your mind. But then Peter also. Says you do this by being sober minded, or, or literally just sober. You gird up the loins of your mind, number one, and number two, be sober. Now, this here is not a command just to, uh, to not get drunk. It, it draws on that idea, it draws on that image, but he's not just saying think about the gospel always and don't ever get drunk. He's causing us to to think about what happens when someone is drunk. What happens? A lot of things can happen. Number one, their their senses can become numb. Perhaps you've, you've seen in some old war movie before, a Civil War movie or something like that, a soldier gets shot. And the medic has to, you know, remove that bullet from from his wound. And before he does the medical procedure, what does he do? He'll, he'll give him some alcohol to numb the pain. And it can have a numbing effect on the senses. A drunk can also become emotionally unstable. And the smallest things can, can cause them to fly into a fit of anger or it can can cause them to, to go into a state of depression. That their emotions are all over the place. He can lose his physical orientation and balance. He can black out and forget where, where he was or where he even is in the moment. Well, similarly, that's what the world can do to you. The more that you drink of it, the more it can numb you to the things of God and the Gospel. Perhaps, for example, you've you've worked, or even you are working, at a job, and and you're around a lot of unbelievers. And you want to have a a good relationship with them, you want to be cordial, you're genuinely concerned about their life, you want to know them, but you know, you get to know them. you cut up with them. You joke around with them. You, have, you engage in small talk with them. But Maybe you're, you're out at lunch or you're in the teacher's lounge or wherever you may be and everybody is gathered around together. They're all unbelievers and they start really cutting up using some crude joking. And you find yourself starting to engage in the same kind of banter. And you know it's wrong. You know that you are not using your words to the glory of God. Because you are so concerned about man, you begin to engage. You begin to drink of the world's conversation and it numbs you to the things of the Lord. That's what Peter's getting at here. You need to always set your hope on the Gospel. And one of the ways that you do that is by always being sober. Not drunk on the world. Now, this leads us to the second main exhortation which is closely related. In light of the Gospel, we are of course first of all to be hopeful But second, we are to be holy. We are to be holy. The gospel has implications for how we live. The main command here is found in verse 15. Peter says there, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Very simply nothing more profound to add than to simply state the command, Christian, you are obligated to be holy. It's not something that you can leave aside for those really strong Christians. It's not an option. This command is for every single person who professes to know Christ. And to deny this, right? to, to, to think that holiness is not really that big of, a, of an issue, it's not really something that your effort needs to be going into. To deny the necessity of personal holiness, friends, is to deny the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It is to be functionally anti-Trinitarian, right? a functional heretic. Because it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make you holy. And as we pursue holiness, we do so recognizing that the power of God is at work within us. Now, to understand what holiness looks like, we can think of it in in three parts using this text here. We can think negatively in terms of what it is not, what is the opposite of holiness, We can think of it in terms of just the meaning of the Word and what that implies. And then we can think of it in light of who God is. Negatively, what holiness is not is stated in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, Peter says there, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Former. Ignorance. There was a time when you did not know God. You were ignorant. And whether that was when you were five years old, or whether that was later in life, when you were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, at one time you did not know God at all and were an idolater. Peter says that if you are now in Christ, and if you belong to Him, that's in the past. That's your former ignorance. And in that former time, you lived in a certain way. You had sinful passions that ruled over you. Some of these are described in 1 Peter 2, verse 1. He, He talks about malice, and deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are all the things that characterize an unbeliever. When you talk to someone who doesn't know Christ, it's it's usually not hard to get them to admit that they lie or they have lied quite often in their lives. It's not hard to get people to admit that they frequently lust. That they engage in all kinds of covetousness. They form cliques. They spread rumors and gossip. That's just the way the world operates. And Peter is saying, this is not for you. You are not to be conformed to these passions. Peter in chapter 2, verse 11, he says that these are passions, in fact, that wage war against your soul. You don't engage in those things that are going to kill you. And holiness requires you to repent of these things. They are not to be characteristics of your life. There is no such thing as an envious Christian. Or a hypocritical Christian. Or a gay Christian. Those are not biblical categories. When you are in Christ, those are part of your former ignorance. Now, the designation given to you in Christ is saint. Holy ones. You're not sainted after death. You're sainted now in Christ. And the call is to live in accordance with that saint. Now, another way of looking at holiness is just by the meaning of the Word. Its most basic sense has to do with something being set apart or consecrated for use to God. There's a good example of this meaning in a verse that we read earlier from 2 Timothy 2, verse 21. Paul says there, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy. Useful to the master of the house. Ready for every good work. Holiness means that the entirety of your life belongs to God. Again, there is no sacred, secular divide for the Christian. In Christ, your life is no longer about Fulfilling the American dream, it is about fulfilling obedience to Christ. And when there is a conflict between what the world is obligating you to do and what Christ is obligating you to do in His Word, you always, one hundred percent of the time, obey Christ and not the word, uh, not the world. And then, lastly, we can think of holiness in light of who God is. Peter grounds his exhortation here by quoting from the book of Leviticus where God is commanding His people to make a distinction in the context of Leviticus 11 between things that are clean and things that are unclean. They are to separate themselves from the usual ways that the world operates in very obvious and visible ways. And then God says to them, you shall be holy, set apart for me, for I am holy. God was and He is unlike all of the false gods of the nations. He is the only true God and the only God who has revealed Himself through great displays of His power. But in Himself, in the very essence of His divine nature, He is holy. He is set apart from all others and all things that He does, He does for His own glory. Every day, as He's upholding the world, He is doing this for His glory. When He created the world, when He established His plan of redemption from all eternity, He did so for His own glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says that by Him, by Christ, the image of the invisible God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. God. For him to be holy is to be always in pursuit of his own glory. And friends, it is the same for you and me. To be holy is to be always in pursuit of the glory of God. We teach the gospel to our children so that God will receive the proper glory and praise due to His name. We preach the Gospel to the lost both here and abroad because God deserves to be worshipped. And He will only be worshipped when people hear the Gospel and believe and worship Him. We work, and we work with maximum effort not to be seen by men not to receive the praise of men, but to bear witness to the glory of God. We set apart all aspects of our lives as holy to the Lord because God Himself is holy and has united us to Himself by the Holy Spirit. The gospel of Christ has implications, friends. It is not a license to live. And sin. And then to presume on the grace of God. It's a message that frees us from sin so that we can be holy. You know, it's it's very easy. It's very easy to look around at the world and to see all of the, the obvious displays of sin and evil and corruption. And it's very easy as well to, to look at the wider landscape of churches in the world and in our own nation and to see so much silliness. To see so many things operating in churches that are directly contrary to the Gospel. It's so easy to look around at all of these things and to see all of this sin permeating every aspect of the culture and then to to despair. Say there's, there's nothing to do. What can we do? Friends, I'll tell you, every single great revival that has ever occurred always began with a small group of people vigorously pursuing holiness you think about the methodist movement that got started a couple hundred years ago the wesleys and whitfield they had some different theological points one of the things that drove them to preach the Gospel, to, to go from colony to colony, preaching the Gospel, was this pursuit of holiness. And when people became believers, they didn't just check them off. Say, we, we, we tallied up. We had uh, a hundred conversions today and then move on. The whole point was to make disciples of believers. And to make disciples was to make a people who had a passionate, burning desire to be holy in all of life. The great Puritans that many of us often look to as examples of faithfulness to God. Friends, they're examples because they made all of their lives, not just some of it, all of their lives consecrated to the will of God. And so the call, biblically, that we have, is a very simple one. Number one, be hopeful. Don't despair. You trust in the gospel. People who have have been before us, who have gone before us, have seen way worse than we have seen. You continue to trust in the Lord. And then be holy. That's the summary of the Christian life. Friends, pursue holiness. Go to the Word of God. Look at His commandments and make it a purpose that you will by all means obey the Word of God and bring glory to the Son of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that You sent your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, that through the gospel, you reconciled us to yourself. Lord, we know that the world can be a very tempting thing, that the passions of our former ignorance that wage war against our soul can, can often achieve victory. Lord, I pray that that would not be the case, that we would understand and recognize that we are in a battle and that that battle is for holiness, and that every day we have a decision to make on whether or not we are going to live in accordance with the gospel and consecrate the entirety of our lives for your glory, or whether or not we're going to live halfway and attempt to walk the Christian life limping. Pray for everyone here that our burning desire that we would pursue holiness and that you would make us a people set apart for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name.